So seven years ago, I was a freshman at UNI, just like many of you or some of you, and I began to feel this tug towards full-time ministry. I began to feel something that Christians call a call, okay? I felt this call towards full-time ministry, and a call is just when God gives you a deep sense of what you're supposed to do with your life. So some of you might feel called to teaching, or maybe you feel called to be an accountant. It could be a, a number of different things, but for me, as I began to feel this call towards ministry, I took some steps so I could position myself in such a way that I could be in full-time ministry someday. And one of those steps was I got married to my wife, Emily, and then we moved up to Minneapolis to study for ministry. And during our time in Minneapolis, we were uh, connected with the Chi Alpha at the University of Minnesota. And I went from being a part of you and I, Chi Alpha, when there was like 30, 40 people at the time, and I was the only one, uh, well, not the only one, I was one of a few that really cared about Chi Alpha, and I was kind of one of the main leaders. And then I went up to the U of M, and there's this really like, sweet leadership team. They already had this like tight-knit community, and I struggled during my first year there to try to figure out where my place was in that community. I struggled uh, to see what God was doing. But then as time went on, my purpose and my role began to kind of crystallize. I began to see my place there. I began to see that I had a role in that community. And as I saw my purpose in that community, it gave me joy. It helped me to, or to really buy in and to uh, just give my time or just put my full energy, my full effort into my time there. I wish I knew then when I first went there what I know now. And the thing I know now is that my time at the U of M was uh, to prepare me for this, to prepare me to come back here and to lead you guys. And I think some of us, I think uh, the struggle that Emily and I had when we were in Minnesota of trying to figure out our place and, and why we were there, I think uh, some of us have that struggle with life. Like when you really peel back all the busyness and all the things you've fill your schedule up with. Uh, sometimes when it's just us and we're alone, we wonder, uh, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all the things I'm doing? What's the point in going to class? What's the point in going to work? And, and for some of us, we have you know, very clear goals. Uh, so that helps us to, to continue doing those things, to continue going to class and doing homework and getting or going to our job because we have a goal. But the question is, once you reach that goal, whether that that's finding a spouse, or that's getting your job, or getting out of college. Once you reach those goals, and it's just you and God, and you're just living life, then what are you going to do? Like, then what's your purpose? Because right now, your purpose for school is to get a job, but then what after that? Like, what uh, once you get married, and you have kids, and you're just living life, what's your purpose? That's the question. I think, I think a lot of us who are deeper people who think about these things, some of us just play video games, we don't really think about these things, but for those of us who think about these things, that's the questions we have. And, and great philosophers and, and theologians and thought leaders throughout history have considered the question, what is the meaning of life? And Albert Einstein said this. He said, to create satisfaction for ourselves and for other people. That was his idea of the meaning of life. Aristotle said, what is the essence of life? It's to serve others and to do good. And I think these thinkers catch a glimpse of our purpose. They kind of see a little bit of it, but I don't think they see the entirety of it. Although the Bible never explicitly says, this is your purpose in life, the entirety of Scripture gives us a clear testimony of what our purpose is. And that's what I want to look at tonight. So tonight we're going to 
pick up on the Kings and Queens series. So the first week, if you remember, if you came the first week, it seems like forever ago. Like, doesn't it seem like we're like at midterms already? I don't know if it's the rain or what's going on, but it feels like week 10 to me. Uh, but that was only two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about how we become sons and daughters of God. So the whole Kings and Queens idea is that God has called us sons and daughters if we put our faith in Christ. And if we're sons and daughters of the King of the universe, then that means that God is training us to reign with him for eternity. So what's that mean? That's what we've been considering. In the first week, we just talked about how we become a son or daughter of God. And then last week, we talked about how we actually live like a son or daughter of God. Because some of us, let's be honest, we're positionally a son or daughter of God. Like we put our faith in Christ. We've said, yes, I believe in Jesus. But we don't actually live like a son or daughter of God. We give in to sin. We live our lives like the rest of the world. We don't really live like Jesus. So last week, we talked about how we do that. How do we actually live like a son or daughter? And the big idea was that the way we live like a son or daughter is if we understand that God looks at us the same way he looks at Jesus. So if God looks at us the same way he looks at Jesus, that can propel us forward. You know, grace propels us forward to live the life that God has called us to live. All right, now this week we're going to take it one step further and talk about our purpose as God's sons and daughters on the earth. You know, God, if you're a Christian, God has called you to be his deputy or to be his ambassador. You know, Chi Alpha means Christ's ambassadors. That's what it means. And God's called you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be his ambassador on the earth, to be his representative on the earth. And tonight we're going to kind of look at what that means, what our purpose is. So tonight's message is entitled, A Kingdom Purpose. A Kingdom Purpose. God has given us an incredible why, an incredible, an incredible why for why we exist. And tonight we're going to lean into that a little bit and realize that glorious calling. So if you have your Bibles, Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. That's where we're going to hang out tonight. And this, this psalm, and really most of the psalms, are hymns of praise to God. They're, they're pretty much worship songs. That's what they are. So they're similar to like the songs we sang tonight. You know, obviously these are divinely inspired. They're in the scriptures, but they're similar. They're songs to God. And this psalm specifically was written by King David, who was the most famous of the ancient Israelite kings, okay? So there's a lot of Israelite kings. So it, Israel is what the Old Testament's about, okay? So Israel was God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, and there are many different kings who sat on the throne, and most of them were bad, like they did not do very well, but David did a really good job, according to God. And the Bible even says in other places that David was a man after God's own heart, like he was after God's heart. That's my prayer, that God would look at me and say, Daniel's after my heart. I pray that that would be your prayer as well, that that you'd be a person who's after God's heart. So this is who we're working with here. This is the one who wrote this song, a man who was after God's heart. And this psalm really reveals his love for God. It, it really reveals those, those longings for God. Its purpose is to get us to marvel at God, to be in awe of him. Like the reason we worship, the reason we do this is not just because that's what you're supposed to do in church. The reason we worship is because we want to get your hearts inflamed with awe for God, to be in awe, like, holy cow, God cares about me. God cares about me. That's what we're trying to get you to do when you come in here, not just to sing along, but to have your hearts inflamed with God's love. So that's what David is doing. He is marveling at God, and the thing he's specifically marveling at is the fact that God has given man, so women, and man, that's just a way to say all humans. He's given humans this incredible purpose in his created order. It even says in the book of Genesis that a man and woman are God's pinnacle of creation. It's, it's God's greatest 
creation. It says that God made man and woman in his image. So David is marveling at that in the Psalms. Let's read it. I hope you're excited about it. I hope I talked it up enough for you. All right, it says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And and that's not the Avengers, as in Robert Downey Jr. But sorry, I love the Avengers. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it after service. All right, verse 3. So when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the question comes to my mind. The question is this, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, who are we that you care for us? And yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a beautiful psalm. This should get your heart kind of moving tonight. It should kind of uh, just kindle the embers of your heart tonight. It starts by, by praising God for his greatness, and then it takes us into the reflection that God cares for us, and then it so beautifully concludes by just reflecting on our calling as human beings to rule alongside God. And it really reveals our purpose as human beings. It really captures it. So the main idea tonight is this, if you're taking notes. So this is our purpose. And and two things right here. God has called us first to worship him, and second, to restore the world. If you do those things, if you worship God and restore the world, then you're going to be profoundly joyful and satisfied. That's what I want to propose to you tonight. But before we do that, I want to pray. God, we thank you for your presence. I thank you that you're here. God, I thank you that you brought each and every person here for a purpose. And God, I pray that no person would not be spoken to tonight by you. But I pray that every heart here would hear from your Holy Spirit. So God, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, can we bring my mic down just a little bit, Ryan? Just a little bit so I can yell later? I'm kidding. I might yell a little bit, but this sermon, I'm excited about it. All right, so uh, this psalm really captures the great commandments very well. It captures the great commandments. And what are the great commandments? I shared these last week, but if you missed it, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 39, the teachers of the law, they come and ask Jesus, they say, what are the most important commandments in the law? And this is what Jesus says. He says, the first one's, well, first one's this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. So it starts with loving God. And the second thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. So simply put, this is our calling as human beings, to love God and to love people. But the question is, what does this look like practically? Does this mean we have warm affections in our heart towards God and people? Yeah, partially, but there's more to it than that. And I want to kind of take a look at that tonight. So I want to go back and read verses 1 through 4 again and see the great commandment in these verses. So it says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and that you care for him? All right, so this captures our first purpose. So our first purpose is vertical. 
okay? It's the vertical purpose is what I'll call it. And this purpose is we're called to worship God. We're called to worship God. So the psalm begins with statements of awe and wonder at who God is. In verse 1, David proclaims that God's name is majestic. And then he marvels that God establishes strength through babies and infants. And what does that mean? At first, I didn't know what that meant, but I looked it up. And that just means that God does incredible things through really weak people. He does incredible things through people who think they can't do it on their own. I'm telling you tonight, some of you are called to a glorious purpose, but you think, I'm just a baby. I'm just an infant. But God wants to show his strength through your weakness. God is calling you to some things that are bigger than you could ever imagine, things that are beyond your ability, because that's what God likes to do. He likes to work through weak people. And then in verses 3 and 4, David considers the heavens and the moon and the stars. That's a good practice. Go out in the middle of a cornfield and look up and say, holy moly, God is over all of this. He hung the stars, and he's driven to awe that the God who created the hundreds of billions of galaxies looks down on each one of us and is interested in our lives. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that God is interested in your life? God is interested in you. He's interested in your concerns and your worries and your thoughts and those things you think about as you sit up in your loft at night and consider or consider your life. He's interested in those things. God cares about you. David's heart is so full of awe and wonder for God that it just bubbles up out of his heart and onto the page as he writes this psalm. And it reveals the first part of our purpose. We're called to live our lives in worship of God with both our affections, so our hearts, and also our lifestyles. We're called to seek God with everything we have. Everything we have. God has to be first in our lives. Psalm 27.4 says this. I love this verse. It says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, so this is David again, he says, there's one thing I've asked, that I could gaze upon the beauty of God. Worship of God and relationship with him is absolutely fundamental and primary to our purpose as human beings. The very first two commandments of the Ten Commandments reflect this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 5 says this. It says, it says, you shall love, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. So worshiping God above other gods and above idols is of primary importance to God. And because most of us Westerners are monotheistic, which means we believe in one God, and we're typically not idol worshipers. There might be one or two in here. I don't think so, but, but I think most of us don't worship idols. I think a lot of times we read this and we say, oh, I don't have any gods before God. I believe in one God. And maybe this American version of God that's not really the God of the Bible, but I believe in one God. And then we say, I don't bow down to idols, so that doesn't apply to me. These things don't apply to me. Our main consideration as Americans, for the most part, is if we believe in God. It's not like, do we believe in God or do we believe in multiple gods? It's just, do we believe in one God or not? So a lot of times, these commandments kind of just 
bounce off our chest. Like, we don't really take them in. But it's important to know that these commandments aren't just about actual deities or about wooden idols. A little g-god or an idol can be anything that takes the most important place in your life. God is not just concerned with you choosing him over Allah. God is concerned with you choosing him over everything else. He needs to be the primary, the primary thing in your heart, the primary thing that you're concerned about, the primary person you're concerned about. And because we're wired to worship, because every human being wants to worship, it's just within our heart, we've all struggled with this idea of worshiping little g-gods or worshiping idols because we're wired to worship. The question is not whether or not we worship because we all worship, but the question is who or what do we worship? You know, Tim Keller, he's an incredible pastor. Buy any of his books and it'll change your life. He says this in Center Church. He says this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So although we don't typically struggle with idol worship, you know, bowing down to wooden idols, uh, we all struggle with worshiping idols in our hearts. And the Old Testament book of Ezekiel kind of touches on this. And in chapter 14, verse 3, God accuses the elders of Israel, so the leaders of Israel, of putting idols up in their hearts. So it says, The son of man, these, or these men have taken their idols into their hearts. So internal idol worship is universal. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. So to find out what or who you worship, I encourage you to do this. Pull up your bank statement. Pull out your calendar. And what are the things you spend your money on? And how do you spend your time? So when you have two obligations, what kind of takes precedence? Is it worshiping God and community like you're all doing tonight? Thank you for coming. Is it small group and things like that? It's not just Kyle stuff. Is it church? Is it spending time with Jesus on your own? Or is it I have this and this and that and that, and I have this social event and all these other things going on? And if it always, like sometimes you have to, you know, skip a service or whatever. That happens. But if it's always, I'm going to choose the other thing. You know, I'll go to church, you know, once a month. That's how Americans go to church these days, like once a month. Please don't be that way. Please go to church every week. Okay, be like our parents were and go to church every week. It's a good thing. But anyways, if we, if we keep going towards the other side, then maybe we're worshiping something other than Jesus. Maybe we're worshiping something other than Jesus. So we most often worship whatever is most important to us. So, for example, some people worship money. Dollar, dollar bills, they want their dollar, dollar bills. Some people want money, and they will overwork. They will sacrifice their families. They'll do whatever it takes to get some cash flow. Some people, and a lot of people in Iowa, I think, do this. Like, some people worship their families. Like, family first. Family first. That's a great sentiment, but it's not biblical. Your family is not your God. Sometimes Jesus called people to leave their families to follow him. I'm not saying don't honor your father and mother. That's another commandment, so you should do that. But I'm saying when it's Jesus or family, Jesus needs to take precedence. And some people just worship their family so much so that their family is constantly disappointing them because they can't live up to their expectations because their family is supposed to be their God. And, they don't, and there's no human being who can live up to that expectation of being God. So they're constantly frustrated they're constantly disappointed in their family members. Some people worship their country. Just get on Facebook. Some people are so patriotic. And I'm all about, 
you know, like America's great. It's a good country. But some people have bowed down to the idol of the USA. America should not have your allegiance, first and foremost. Jesus Christ should. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, I thought about that the other day. Like, it's so weird that we have our little kids stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag. I just think it's weird. I'm not saying I'm not going to have my kids do it. But I pledge allegiance to Jesus. I don't pledge allegiance to my country. I do in a sense, okay? I'm not unpatriotic. Others worship achievement and believe that academics or vocational achievement are going to fulfill them in life. If I just get a 4.0 in college, if I just get that great job, if I just get promoted, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be fulfilled. Guess what? I promise you, when you fulfill those aspirations, then you'll wonder what's next. What do I do now? I achieved this goal. What do I do now? Still others worship athletics and spend tons of money, tons of time on athletics. I hate Saturdays in the fall. I do because I see idol worship all around me in eastern Iowa. I like the Hawkeyes just like the next guy, but I don't like the fact that people who call themselves Christians will get up at 4 a.m. for the Hawkeyes, but they won't get up at 7 o'clock for church. I'm just saying, it's idol worship. That's what it is. There are people bowing down to idols all around us. Guys, we're no different than the Old Testament. People are bowing down to idols. And the question is, are you going to bow down to idols or will you say, I bow down to one person, and that is Jesus Christ? That's the question we have to consider tonight. Jesus wants the first place in your heart. He wants the primary place in your heart. And he will not stop until he has it. There's no such thing as half in, half out Christianity. There's nothing like it. That does not exist. Some people think it does, but it does not. There's only one kind that exists, and that's this. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Give up, or give up your life so you can gain your soul. Or if you try to gain your life, you're going to lose your soul. That's what Jesus said. So the question is, who is going to be the one we worship God's primary concern from the very beginning has been that we worship him first and we worship him alone because he knows if we worship anything else, it's going to eat us alive. If we worship money, then we're never going to have enough. If we worship family, then they'll constantly fail us. If we worship academics, then we'll feel empty after we achieve those things. If we worship athletics, then you'll be like I was as a kid and cry every time the Redskins lose. <laughs> I did that. I felt like, seriously, like as a 10-year-old, I was like, I fell into despair when they would lose in the playoffs, which was every time. <laughs> it was hard. But if we worship God first, everything else will take its proper place, and we'll be able to enjoy those things. We'll be able to enjoy family the way we were supposed to. We'll be able to enjoy the Hawkeyes like we're supposed to. And we'll find satisfaction. In a conversation with the sinful woman in the Gospel of John, Jesus assures her that there is nothing of this world that can satisfy her, but he can. In John chapter 4, it says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water that's welling up to eternal life. If we want to live the life that each of us were created to live and have joy and satisfaction, we must drink the water that Jesus is offering us. Jesus offers us the water 
of relationship with God and worshiping Him. If we drink that, we're going to have joy, satisfaction in life. I can remember when I was in high school, I would come to church every week. You know, I'd party on Fridays and Saturdays, both nights, and then Sunday I'd go to church, feel really bad. I'd do the same thing over and over again. I can remember one time specifically sitting in like the third row at church, and a girl comes up on stage and shares a testimony. She had just gotten saved, was not a Christian growing up, and she says, I was tired and thirsty before I was a Christian. I was tired and thirsty. But then when I came to Jesus, I, I was satisfied. I can remember as someone who, who tried to worship all the things of the world alongside God, like I worship academics, popularity, drinking, sex, all these different things. As someone who was trying to do both, I remember just like a spark lighting up in my heart and saying, I want that. I can totally relate with that, that I'm tired and thirsty. And here's the reality. Some of you are tired and thirsty tonight because you're trying to worship God alongside other gods. You have this whole pantheon, and you're trying to worship all these different gods. But Jesus can only, or Jesus can only be worshipped if you worship him alone. All right. So that's our first purpose. Our first purpose is vertical, to worship God, to put him first to give him leadership of our lives. But the second purpose comes in verses 5 through 9. It says this, And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this is our horizontal purpose. We're called to work alongside Jesus for the restoration of the world by doing something. And it's by making disciples. So David begins the psalm by just marveling at God's power and the fact that he cares for man. And then he pivots here and he begins to reflect on man's important role in the created order. He says that God has made us just a little bit lower than the angels, just a little bit lower. And he's given us glory, and he's given us honor. And he also knows that God has given us dominion over the world, and he's put all things under our feet. So what does this mean? That sounds pretty cool. Sounds pretty incredible. This psalm shows us that God has given us a high calling. We are called to rule the world alongside God. We're called to be God's kings and queens, God's deputies, God's ambassadors on the earth, establishing order and establishing an environment for the flourishing of the world. You know, Genesis 128 hints at this. It says, and this is the very first book of the Bible, okay? Very first book, God just created man and he gives them, or he gives them this command. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that is moving on the earth. So originally, we were created to subdue the world alongside God. Everything was meant to be put under our feet. However, as you can see just by looking at your own life, or by watching the news, or paying attention to natural disasters, all things are not under our feet, are they? Because nature, specifically nature, swallows up man all the time. There's floods, there's tornadoes, there's tsunamis. The world is not under our feet. Another way we see this is billions and billions of people call upon the wrong God. 
Billions of people do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All things are not under our feet. And the reason for this, the reason we've lost dominion, is in Genesis chapter 3, so just two chapters after Genesis 1, Adam and Eve give in to sin. They, they choose sin over God, and they give up their right to rule, and they hand it to Satan. They give Satan the keys to the world and say, you can be the ruler of this world. The New Testament says that Satan is the present power in this world. He's the present ruler. And ever since then, the world has not functioned in the way that it should. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. The writer to the Hebrews, which is a New Testament book, he reflects on Psalm 8, so the verse we're reading tonight, the verses we're reading, and he shows us how we can recapture our right to rule. It says this, For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, which I think he forgot, Psalm 8. Uh, testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, of the son of man that you care for him? And you've made him for a little while, just lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in, in subjection under his feet. And now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So the writer to the Hebrews has a brain, and he can observe, and he realizes that everything is not in subjection to man. Although it originally was supposed to be that way, it's not that way anymore. Okay, so in verse 9, though, it says this, But we see him who for a little while was made just a little bit lower than angels, and namely Jesus, okay, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So through Jesus lowering himself below the angels by coming to earth, and through dying in our place, tasting death for everyone, and through rising from the grave, Jesus has recaptured our right to rule and has began the process of restoring the world so we can truly regain the dominion that God gave us in Genesis chapter 1. So with that said, Jesus has ushered in a new age where people are coming to know him, and slowly but surely the world is being put to rights. Eventually, Jesus will come back and he will set the world right once and for all. But between now and then, it's our job. It's our job to take up our rule alongside Jesus and to restore the world by doing something specific, by inviting people into relationship with God, thereby leaving Satan's rule and entering the kingdom of heaven. This is the second part of our purpose, to not only worship God, not just to sit in your dorm room and praise the Lord, but to lead the world to worship God, to see every tribe, tongue, and nation bow at the feet of Jesus. That is the purpose of humanity, and if you don't live in that purpose, if you don't lean into that, you're going to be dissatisfied because God has given you a calling to be his ambassadors on the planet, calling people to right relationship with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, it says this, this is the last command that Jesus gives us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we restore the world by making disciples. And that sounds like Christianese. You know, what does that mean, you know, making disciples? What does that actually mean? Well, this idea of discipleship is just teaching people to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do. Verse 20 says it. 
is this process of helping people to live like Christ in the world, to be little Jesuses on the planet, to be God's sons and daughters, and to be his ambassadors, to invite people into this. And we're so concerned in the American church with asking people to pray a prayer of forgiveness. And I do that every week. You've seen me do that both weeks so far, and we'll do it again tonight. But sometimes we miss that God doesn't want us to just get people out of hell, but he wants us to bring heaven to earth through being his ambassadors on the planet. God wants us not only to get people out of hell, but then to commission them to bring heaven to earth. So that's what we're concerned about. We're concerned about discipleship, not just salvation, but also discipleship. So how do we make disciples? That sounds pretty, a pretty big task. Like, how do we get people to live like Jesus? Well, I'll tell you this, it's really hard at times. It can be hard, but there's a few things I can give you tonight. I haven't figured everything out, but these are a few ways we get people to live like Jesus. The first thing is using your lips, okay? That's scary for some of us. We don't want to talk to anybody we don't know. We don't want to talk to anybody at all about deep things. But Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says this. Uh, the apostle Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So there's a part of discipleship that has to do with proclaiming. It has to do with proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and the word that Paul uses for preaching is this, is this Greek word caruso, which means to be a herald or to proclaim openly. So we're called to proclaim the gospel with our lips. And I'm not telling you to go stand up on a table in the union and proclaim the gospel. If you want to do that, more power to you. That takes some bravery. I love it, the courage there. But I think a better way to share is to share it in the context of relationships. You know, you know share your story with people. Share what God's done in your life. Share what the Bible says about sin and forgiveness and salvation. So it's part of it where we share. We use our lips. But there's a second part, too. And I like this one a little bit better, to be honest. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. If you went to Smarter last week, you looked at this passage. It says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, uh, we were uh, ready to share with you not only the gospel, so not only sharing the gospel with our lips, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So secondly, we make disciples by sharing our lives with other people. So we're not only called to share the gospel with our words, which we are called to do that. We're called to do that, but we're not just called to do, or to the, or to do that. We're also called to share our lives with others. All the introverts are like, oh, come on. I don't want to share my life with others. I just want to come sit in a service or listen to the podcast. I don't really want to share my life with others. But we're called to this. We're called to demonstrate the gospel through the way we care for others. We're called to love people by sharing life with them. That's why this community believes in small groups so strongly. Because I believe that God can do more through a person who loves another person than he can through a great message. I realize that you all typically forget my messages. It's okay. I get that. There's still something that happens as we preach. But I know that, that uh, relationships go way further that's part of my story, too. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was you know, struggling with these things, struggling with being torn between uh, one lifestyle and the other. And I had this pastor who's actually now uh, the state Chi Alpha director. He's going to be preaching here this fall. Uh, and the other girl who I shared about was actually his wife, okay? So kind of crazy. But anyways, he just modeled this so well to me. I remember I'd come to youth group, and I was such an idiot. I would do the same stuff over and over and over again. I don't know how he had patience with me, because sometimes I struggle with patience. You know? But anyways, I, every week I'd come, and I'd be like, oh, Adam, I messed up again. I drank a lot of beer on Friday. And I would share this with him. I'd have tears in my eyes, and he would have tears in his. And he would look at me. 
You tell me that you love me. And that's just what I needed in that season was someone who would love me and model the love of Christ to me through not rejecting me when I screw up, but instead through continually inviting me to be part of his family. And that's what we're called into. We're called into, to, yes, teaching others, to sharing the gospel and the union and in classrooms and dorm rooms. Yes, please share the message of Jesus. But I would say maybe even more so we're called to love people and to build relationships. People aren't going to listen to you if they don't think you care about them. And we're not just caring about them, so then they'll listen to us. That's called making someone a project. We don't believe in that. But we're so inflamed with the love of God, we have to love other people. We just have been so captivated, like David was, by God's love and by the fact that he cares for us. We just go throughout our community and love other people because we're like, that's what we have to do. Like, we've been showing that love. We have to go share that with others. So if you want to start this process of discipleship, of, of going and sharing the gospel with people, I just want to give you two tips, okay? Two pro tips, maybe pro tips. I've got them from other people, so they are pro tips. All right, first thing is this. So everywhere you go, everywhere you go, pray and ask God to give you divine appointments. Divine appointments. What does that mean? Divine appointments are when God highlights someone to you and creates an opportunity for you to share his love. God wants you to share his love more than you do, okay? So if you pray and ask him to give you divine appointments, then he'll give them to you. I encourage you to do this. Every time you go into a classroom, say, God, show me the empty seat. And look for an empty seat next to someone who needs to hear about the love of Jesus. And go sit next to people. Don't go sit in the corner. That's what I did at times, I'll admit it. Don't sit in the corner. Sit next to people and look for divine appointments. I can remember when I was in Bible college, I took this class called the Master Plan of, or no, it's called Biblical Principles of Evangelism. To be honest, I hadn't really done a lot of evangelizing at that point. I'm going to be a pastor. I haven't evangelized anybody. How does that work out? I don't know. Go to Bible college. It's crazy over there. But anyways, so I go in. First day is like, you've got to share Jesus with three people this semester or you're going to flunk. I'm like, oh, crap. Now I've got to share the gospel because I want to get those A's, okay? So I go to Target that very night, okay? I worked in the back room. I was working back there, and like I always put my headphones in when I work because, you know what, that's just amazing, just working, 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 not having to talk to anybody. And I prayed. I said, God, you know, give me a divine appointment. But then like an idiot, I put my headphones in, you know, not really giving him an opportunity. But then I go to play my music, and my headphones broke. I'm like, okay, I can't listen to my music. So I you know, put my headphones in my pocket, and within five minutes of being in the back room, I was sharing the gospel with someone. God had created an opportunity. The guy asked a question that just led to a conversation. But it took taking the headphones out and actually being aware of what was happening around me. So do that. Look for divine appointments. But the second thing, and this is profound, be a good friend. Be a good friend. Be a good, faithful friend. People are desperate for friendship, especially in college. Be someone who's open to making new best friends. And I promise you have opportunity to share the love of God. Be with people, and you have the opportunity to, to share Jesus. Jesus spent most of his time with 12 men because he believed that the way you change the world is through deep relationships. He believed instead of trying to reach all the masses, he would build up 12 strong men and then send them out to then go build up 12 strong men apiece and then send them out to go build up 12 strong men. It's this process of having deep relationships, sending people out to then go have deep relationships. So I encourage you, if you want to be in the game of discipleship, be a good friend. And if you do that, I promise you, you'll have opportunities 
to make disciples. All right, so the main idea, again, is this. God has called us to worship him and to restore the world. God has called us to, to worship him and restore the world. For millennia, the question of the purpose of life has perplexed the greatest thinkers. Some have thought that it's to create happiness for yourself. It's probably the most popular view today. Others have thought that it's to achieve a state of not wanting anything, the state of contentment that's more of an Eastern idea. Others have thought that it's being a good neighbor and doing good for the world. And most of these leading ideas, as I said at the beginning of the message, they catch a shade of the truth. But the fullness, the true revelation of all these ideas are found in the purpose that Jesus gave us. And if we catch that, we catch the purpose of Christ, it's going to lead to everlasting joy and contentment. It's going to send you on a mission to save the world. Sometimes we watch movies and we're like, oh, I want to be a part of something like that. Like I think that sometimes it's you know, superhero movies or Harry Potter, like I love that, or those books, those movies. I think I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be part of helping people, part of saving the world. But guys, we've been called in something way more profound than an Avenger movie or Harry Potter, any of those things. We've been called to save people for eternity. Like, like, guys, there's a real heaven, there's a real hell, there's angels, there's demons. It's really happening around us, although we don't realize that these things are happening. And people are being tugged towards heaven and hell. And God has called us to be a part of getting people out of hell. And there's no better time, there's no better place to do it than in college. There's no better place than in college. People are more open to new ideas than at any other time in life. People are making decisions that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives. People are desperate for friendship. And I pray that you would not give up your opportunity to make disciples on this campus. There are people that are going to find Jesus through your ministry this year, through reaching out, through Chi Alpha. I'm praying that, that this would be a community where we invite people on Tuesday nights. We invite people to small groups. We invite people to be a part because we are about the things that God is about and that's seeking and saving the lost. But not only that, we don't only want to be about making disciples, but also we want to be about worshiping God for ourselves, right? And some of us tonight, if we're really honest, we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, but there's so many other things we're putting before him, so many things we're worshiping above him. And you know what that is. It could be athletics. It could be your academics. It could be your family. It could be a number of different things, all good things. But then when they become a God in your life, they become sin. So I encourage you tonight to say, I am not going to bow down to any other idol. I'm going to bow down to Jesus and worship him with my whole life. And if you're here tonight and you have yet to become a son or daughter of God. Like you're thinking about all this purpose of, okay, that's great, but I'm not even a son or daughter of God. I don't even believe in Jesus. If that's you tonight, I want to encourage you to consider putting your faith in Christ and becoming a son or daughter of God. John 1.12 says this. It says, but to all who did receive Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So the only thing you have to do to become a Christian or to to become someone who's saved or someone who's forgiven of their sins is just receive Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and as your Savior. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
If you do that, then you'll be saved. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't done that yet, to do that tonight. If you'd uh, stand with me, we're going to close. Jesus has given us the reason for living. From the beginning, we were created to worship God and to help others to worship Him. So I pray that this community would be a community who lives that purpose out.